We come to our text this morning. We are actually going through the Gospel of Mark. Most of you know that. Maybe some of you are here for the first time. And uh, so this is what we're doing. We're making our way through the Gospel, and we've come to the verses that we've read together this morning. And I've entitled the message, Jesus and the Rich Man. And so we're going to really be looking at just that whole subject of, of riches and what is the relationship between a Christian and money and, and things like that. All three synoptic gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, have the story that we just read. So we read it from Mark, uh, Luke, and uh, Matthew and Luke both uh, tell the same story. But as you piece uh, together the information from all three gospels, there are some things that we learn about this person that we don't learn from Mark. And one of them is that, uh, the obvious thing is that he was rich, but what we learn from Matthew is that he was young as well. And uh, what we learn from, you, uh, from Luke is that he was actually a ruler. And so he, we, we commonly call this, even in your Bible, if you have a heading over the portion of scripture, it probably says the rich young ruler. And that's because as you look at the composite, that's uh, what he was. The fact that it is told in all three gospels reminds us of how important it is that we know what the mind of Jesus is on the subject of riches and wealth. So that this is a, a very important topic. It, it appears, like I said, all three gospels. So shows us the, the importance of it. I think this message is especially relevant <coughs> because of the affluent culture uh, that we find ourselves in. We're both the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, and the youngest billionaire in the world, Kylie Jenner, are role models for many. <coughs> so th this teaching, I haven't coughed all morning, <laughs> but of course, second service is the time when I like to just have a coughing fit. Um, so... People always ask me, don't you have any water up there? Yes, I do. <laughs> but somehow I always forget to drink it. So, many in our culture are conditioned uh, to love money. And yet Jesus warned of the dangers of riches. Now, uh, you might find it surprising to note that Jesus warns about the perils of covetousness, which is, you know, the love of money. Uh, he warns about the perils of covetousness 10 times more than he warns about the evils of illicit sex. Now, we rightfully condemn illicit sex, but do we condemn the love of money? You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher, he, he wrote something uh, that relates to this. He, he said, uh, he, he had read this, a Roman Catholic priest who had heard the confessions of some 2,000 persons said, 
He had heard men confess heinous iniquities of every kind, even murder and adultery, but he had never heard any man confess covetousness. That was Francis of Assisi who actually said that. Spurgeon was quoting him. So, I, so that's, that's a reality. It was a reality back in the 12th century, obviously, and it's, and it's a reality today. You know, there, there are certain things that, man, that is sin, and we know that sin, and we're going to make sure everybody else knows it, and we're going to preach on that, and that's fine. That's good. We need to do that. But then there are other things that are equally sin, and for some reason, we just sort of bypass that. And so as we, as we look at the passage today, um, it, it's going to force us to really take a look at this. So, so the first thing I want to do today is, is let's just look at the, um, this man uh, that comes to Jesus. As we said, he's rich, uh, he's young, he's a ruler. Um, so here was a person who at a young age had already attained what most people never attain in a lifetime, and that is wealth and power. So he, he's attained this already. How old was he? Well, we don't know. Jesus was, Jesus was probably 31 um, at the time. You know, Jesus began his ministry when he was 30 years old, and he uh, completed it at approximately 33. Um, but, but it seems like this person was even younger, and, and maybe he was. So uh, he was not only a person who was rich and powerful, but we know by the way he responded to Jesus, uh, he was a person who had a high moral and ethical standard. So he was, uh, you know, he, in many ways, he was serious about life and doing life right and doing it well. And, and so um, when Jesus, you know, when, when he asked him about uh, how, how does one inherit eternal life, Jesus brings up the commandments and his response is, I've done all that. I've done all that from my youth. He basically said, I've been faithful to my wife. I, I haven't stolen anything. I haven't borne false witness against my neighbor. Uh, I, I haven't deceived or cheated anyone. And I honor my parents. And through that, we could imagine that he would also uh, honor the existing uh, authority structures around him. Uh, this is a good guy. This is a great guy. This is a guy that you look at on the outside and think, man, this guy has got it all together. And of course, he was religious as well. And in some cultures still today, being religious is very much uh, an important part of being a good person. And it was in that culture at the time there uh, with Jesus. And yet, with all of that going for him, young and rich and powerful. And, and of course, he had to be good looking too because, you know, just young and rich and powerful people are good looking, right? <laughs> so we can throw that one in there. Uh, but he, so he's got all of that, but he himself recognizes that there's something lacking. Now in Mark's gospel, Jesus says to him, this is what you lack. Uh, but in the other Gospels, he actually asks. So he asks, what am I lacking? Jesus said, this is what you lack. So he recognizes it. And of course, that's why he comes to Jesus in uh, the first place. Tim Keller put it in a modern context like this. He, he said, here's a man who is pulled together. 
has degrees from the right places, is on the partnership track, has already made millions and is only 28 years old. Yet to his surprise, he finds himself seeking out gurus and rabbis saying, I'm still missing something. And so that, that picture is a picture uh, that has, has been repeated over and over and over again and is, is a common reality today. You know, people are young, they're successful, they've got power, prestige, they're in all, you know, connected to all the right things and places and people and all of that, but they, they just know intuitively, you know, there's still something missing. And, and so we see, uh, you know, we, we think sometimes because we read these reports that Christianity is dying in the United States. Well, that's not true for one. Uh, but what we do know is religion certainly isn't dying. People are very religious. And as a matter of fact, uh, people like to identify as religious or spiritual. They just don't want to identify maybe with some organized religion. So we see all kinds of people like this today who, obviously, because they seek out this, this spiritual or religious component, uh, whether they verbalize it or not, the reality is they recognize, you know, all of this wealth, power, fame, whatever, has not fulfilled me internally. So we're surrounded by this. Now, he comes to... Jesus. And let, let's pick up here in um, verse 17, where he comes to Jesus, this young man, and he says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. That is a strange answer from Jesus. Now, I think most of us in here know Jesus. And what do we know about Jesus? Well, we know Jesus, of course, he was good. <laughs> Jesus was really the only one that was good. But he asked this man, why do you call me good? And then he reminds him, no one is good but God. And so, uh, you know, some might think that he's saying he's not good. But, but of course, that's not true. I think what Jesus is actually doing is he's hinting at something even more mind-boggling, and that is that he is God. And see, what we're going to see as we go on in the story, the problem with this guy who seemingly had it all together was that he didn't have the right God. That's the problem. And that's why I think Jesus very uh, subtly slips in this... Um, reminder because he's going to address the, the real issue here um, with this young man. Now, when, when Jesus says, we go on, you know, I'm, I'm kind of taking, we read the whole text, so I'm just sort of jumping around here. But when Jesus said, you know, he asked a question, what, what good thing can I do? Jesus said, um, you know, the commandments. And then he, he stated some of those commandments. The interesting thing, though, is that Jesus stated the commandments in the second table of the law. Now, remember, the law of Moses, we're talking about the Ten Commandments here. They were written on two tablets of stone. So Jesus quotes from the second tablet, not from the first. The second tablet has to do with the horizontal relationship. It has to do with our relationship with others, other people. 
the first table of the law has to do with our relationship with God. The very first command, as a matter of fact, you know, is I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And so you see, this is really the problem. The man could say to the second table of the law, I've done all of that since a youth. What do I still lack? Jesus says, sell everything you have. In other words, get rid of your false God and come and follow me, the true God. That's really what's happening in this conversation here between Jesus and this man. Now, so the problem was not that the man was rich. Let's understand that because people have misunderstood this. It's not that the man was rich. Riches are neither good nor evil. Riches are, are neutral. They're, they're not good or evil. It just depends on your attitude toward them and, and what you do with them. Now, I've heard people misquote the Bible saying, money is the root of all evil. The Bible does not say that. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And boy, if you just think about that, and you think about so many evil things in the world that are driven by the love of money. I mean, think about the drug trade. What is the drug trade all about in the end? It's all about money. It's all about people becoming filthy rich and living in opulence and luxury while everybody else is you know, strung out and living on the streets of New York City uh, with heroin needles in their arm. But, but it's driven by money. What is the pornography industry, what is that driven by? It's a great evil in society, but it's driven by money. It's all about money. It's all about... So the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So let's just be clear on that. Now, the problem with wealth is that it often becomes a substitute for God. See, wealth becomes a substitute for God because wealth represents power and it, it you know, creates ability and opportunity. And so a person who's wealthy doesn't seem to need anything beyond themselves and what their money can buy. And so it easily becomes a substitute for God. And so the real problem with this man is that he has put his trust in riches rather than in God. And as I said, that, that we see that um, in the way Jesus responds to him. Sell what you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. Get your life right with me, with, with God. That's what he's saying. Now, when Jesus said this, even his disciples were stunned. And one of the reasons why they were stunned is because in that culture, wealth was thought to be a sign of God's blessing. And in, and in one sense, it kind of was because under the old covenant, part of the blessing of faithfulness to the covenant was prosperity. You know, it was national and the nation disobeyed God for centuries and, you know, ended up in bondage to Rome at this point. Uh, but the, if there were individual people among the Jewish nation who were wealthy, they were automatically thought of as blessed. 
by God. So the disciples are absolutely stunned because Jesus is telling this young guy who's wealthy and and powerful and morally upright and religious, Jesus is telling him, you need to get rid of all that. Jesus is telling him he is an idolater. So this is such a radical thing. And as we go on in the story, well, of course, Jesus tells the man what he has to do. And it says that he went away sad. This is a sad verse. He went away sad. He went away grieved. And he did that because he had great possession. So apparently, at least at this point, he wasn't really willing to part with his possessions to follow Jesus. He wasn't really willing to trade in the false God of uh, material wealth for the true God. Because as you can imagine, so much of his security, so much of his identity, all of these things are wrapped up in that. Now, Jesus as I said, he looks around. He knows what everybody's thinking. And he says in verse 23, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples, they were astonished at his words. What what is he talking about? But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? And that's the way we need to understand this. But here's the thing. It's hard to not trust in riches when you have them. That, that's where it gets really challenging. So Jesus first says, it's, for those who have riches, it's you know, hard for them to get in the kingdom. Some people think that Jesus is saying, you can't get in the kingdom if you're rich. No, he's not saying that. But what he is saying is that rich people have a hard time not trusting in their riches. And so he clarifies it here. But then he goes on to illustrate the seriousness of his point, he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And they were greatly astonished at this point, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Now, just a clarification here. I heard this as a younger Christian. Maybe you have heard this. That when Jesus says, um, you know, when he's talking about the camel going through the eye of a needle, uh, some people have tried to kind of soften what Jesus was saying. And, And I heard this as a young Christian that, well, he's not talking about the eye of a needle like a, you know, a needle that you're gonna, you're gonna put thread through. Uh, the eye of a needle, they, they said, was a small gate outside the city that would be open at night when the main gates of the city were closed. And, you know, people arriving at the city at night, and they would oftentimes arrive on camels, uh, they would have to go through this small gate. Now, this was a challenge for the camel, but if you stripped the camel down and if you took off all of the burdens and everything, uh, you could, the camel could wiggle its way through. And so what they end up saying is that, um, you know, if you kind of strip yourself down and if you, you know, you can wiggle your way in, um, that's what Jesus was talking about. Uh, No, he wasn't. 
Jesus was talking about a, a real camel and a real needle with an eye on it. Jesus is telling us that this is impossible. And that's what the, the, the illustration makes it clear. It's an impossibility. Those who trust in riches cannot enter the kingdom. It's not possible. Well, then who can be saved, the disciples say. And then Jesus adds, well, with God, all things are possible. See, God has a way of even dealing with the rich to bring them to a place where they no longer trust their riches. And then they can thereby enter the kingdom. So wealthy people, we know this is a fact, um, wealthy people, even extremely wealthy people, have and still do enter the kingdom of God. So how does that happen based on what Jesus says here? Well, here it is. Their wealth is not their savior, it's their servant. And through it, they glorify God. See, again, let me say it. God is not against wealth. He's not against the accumulation of wealth. He's not against people pursuing wealth. But if we're going to do that, we must ultimately do it for his glory. Because, you know, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Anything that any person will ever accumulate is only possible because God made it all. But, but that's the reality. So, you know, even now in our current cultural moment, there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, capitalism is seen as a bad thing and socialism is beginning to be seen as a good thing. And it's the distribution of wealth and kind of like the hatred of the ultra wealthy. And, you know, I mean, they talk about that. And sometimes it's like the wealthiest people in the world that are saying that stuff. So you're like, oh, maybe if you got rid of your stuff and then said it, we might take it more seriously. But uh, as long as you're living like you're living and preaching at us about how people shouldn't be rich, except you evidently, uh, we're not going to really buy that. <laughs> at least I'm not going to buy that. Um, but, but, you know, again, I'm saying that because, you know, people, people, you know, people have even said something like, uh, well, socialism is the most consistent with a biblical uh, picture of what an economy should look like. Well, that, that isn't true. But, you know, be that as it may, uh, the, the major point that I want to make here, again, is that God is not against wealth. And God actually blesses people. But what he is against is uh, people worshiping their riches and living for them and, and making them an idol and then oppressing other people and so forth, you know, as a result of that. So, so the difference is um, whether, whether wealth is your savior or wealth is your servant. Now, how does one know if money is your savior rather than your servant? Or how do you know if your identity is in your wealth rather than in Christ? Now, of course, for many people, this is their identity. Their identity is all about the money. And you know probably that this is true, that many people are so consumed with uh, having a, a, a wealthy identity that they will actually fake being wealthy just to, to maintain the, the image that, you know, I am a rich person. And you can find people all around Orange County and L.A. County and Southern California who are doing that very thing. 
they come off as, you know, wealthy, successful, and, and all of that. And then, boy, you see the debt they're in and all that. It's a, it's a facade. But it's an image that they're, they're trying to uh, uphold because that's their identity. So how do you know if that's you? Well, here's a couple of things. Uh, number one, if your money is your savior rather than your servant, you can't give it away. You can't give it away. And you especially can't give large amounts of it away. And you can't even give it to the work of God. Now, you know what's ironic, and you, you probably have read these statistics as well. Do you know that the most wealthy people are the most stingy people? You know, when it comes to charitable giving, and you know, those reports are filed. You can read them here and there. They come out occasionally. It's like the wealthiest people in the country are the biggest cheapskates of all. They don't give to anything. They talk about the poor. They talk about helping the poor and all of that. And then at the end, it's like the poor, it's a great cause. You help them. That's, that's their attitude. Somebody else help them. I will be their champion. I will vocalize, uh, you know, and I'll preach against this and that and the other thing, but I won't spend a dollar to help them. I mean, that, that is a reality. That, that is. So, but why? Why are people like that? Well, because uh, their money is their savior. Their money is their identity. So they can't give away their money. Uh, secondly, if you get scared, if you might have less than you're accustomed to having, then your money is your savior. If the thought of, you know, man, if, if, my, if I got into a lower income bracket, that would just be the end. If, the, if that is there underneath the surface with you, then that shows that your priorities are out of whack when it comes to money. And then thirdly and, and finally, when you see people that have more money than you and it irritates you, then you know that you got a problem. And that's called covetousness. That's what it is. And remember, as Francis of Assisi said, after thousands of confessions, he never heard one person confess to covetousness. But how many people have it? Covetousness is not to look at something nice and say, well, that's great, I'd like to have that. It's to look at something nice and say, why does that loser have that? And why don't I have that? And I should have that. And I'm going to get that. And I'm going to actually get a better one than that. Just to show them who's boss here. So, if you fall into that category, and look, you don't have to be filthy rich to, you know, have these kinds of attitudes. Some people are, you know, stingy, just, that's just the way they are. Uh, but but these, these are warning signs. Now, there are also many examples of rich people who have and still do use their wealth for the kingdom. I think of um, somebody like H.J. Hines. Now, we know H.J. Hines. Uh, he's no longer here. He lived in the 1800s and invented Heinz 57 sauce and, you know, all the ketchup and all of those condiments that we all have enjoyed for all of our lives. Um, he was the first uh, American to have a global company, an international company. He was a Christian. He was a solid believer. 
in Christ. And, and this was his motto. And what a great motto it was. He said, make all you can honestly, save all you can prudently, give all you can wisely. That was the way he lived. He was the greatest blessing. I mean, he set the standard in the industry early on of how uh, the right way to treat employees and so forth. So he became extremely wealthy, but he didn't uh, make his wealth on the backs of other people. He made his wealth honestly and fairly. And so that's a great example. Uh, C.T. Studd, uh, some of you might know that name. He's, he's known as, uh, C.T. Stead was a missionary. He was part of a group called the Cambridge Seven. He was a great cricketer at uh, Cambridge, and everybody thought he was going to go on into this career. But not only that, but he was, uh, his family was extremely wealthy. And he was the heir of his family's fortune, but at the, in his early 20s, he gave it all away. And he went to China with Hudson Taylor. And then he went to India. And then in his later years of life, he went to Africa. So, I mean, in a sense, he did exactly what this young man uh, was called to do and didn't do. So C.T. Studd did that. Uh, but, but a more uh, a current example would be um, somebody like the Hobby Lobby founders, the Green family, and, and other uh, lesser known wealthy Christians. You know, they give millions and millions of dollars annually to the work of the kingdom, to the cause of the kingdom. They built the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., and they didn't build that because they needed another building. They built it because they want the gospel to go forth, and that, that's the motivation behind that. But they give uh, philanthropically. They give to, uh, you know, I know people that have received gifts from them for, for the work of the kingdom and so forth. And, and so... You know, we see that it's, it's not wealth that God is against. It's wealth becoming your God. And Jesus put it this way in an earlier passage. He said, you cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon was a false God in the ancient world who represented wealth and power. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You'll love the one and hate the other. And so, that's the word of Jesus. Now, because this is really such a serious issue in our ultra-materialistic society, I, I want to just have us look at a couple of scriptures where, you know, in these two passages that Paul writes to Timothy, uh, he kind of just sums up what the real issues are with this subject of riches. And here's what Paul said in First uh, Timothy uh, chapter six, uh, verses six through ten, he said, "Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content." Listen, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown people in ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, notice this. Notice what Paul is saying. 
He says, but those who desire to be rich. Now, he's talking about an inordinate desire to be rich. He's not just talking about people who, you know, somebody says, well, you know, I, I want to I wanna make some money. And I want to make that money because I want to use that money to bless. I want to bless people. I want to see the kingdom of God expanded. He's not talking about a person like that. He's talking about a person who has an inordinate desire to be rich. He's talking about a person who loves money. Because through that money, they're going to live in opulence and pleasure and excess and all of those things. And so he's got an inordinate desire. He's got the love of money. And then, of course, the word greediness is here. He's talking about a, a greedy person. And he, and he warns. And this is the story of the history of the world, right? He warns that those who do this, those who pursue this, they, in the end, pierce themselves through with many sorrows. They plunge themselves into ruin and destruction. And man, that story has been told a million times over. But he goes on and he says this in verse 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. So Paul acknowledges that some of the Christians are rich. What does he say? Command them not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in uncertain riches, but to put their hope in the living God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So can Christians be rich? Yes, absolutely. But they're not to be arrogant. And they're not to trust in their riches, but to trust in the Lord. And you see, again, this is the problem, trusting in riches. You think of, you know, when the stock market has crashed, even recently, not all that long ago, and people jumped off buildings, threw themselves off bridges. I mean, it was it. It was over. And what, what does that tell you about them? What were they trusting in? They were trusting in uncertain riches. And that's the thing with riches. You don't have any control. You might be rich today and flat broke tomorrow. Have no control over that. But there is a wealth that is um, untarnishable. It is unassailable uh, in that it can't be stolen from you. It's the riches in Christ. That's where we want to be rich. And so as we close, I want us to go back and I want us to look at one more verse. Verse 21. And this is so interesting. It's always been interesting to me because Mark's the only one who describes the scene like this. And so um, the, Jesus says, you know, keep, you know the commandments. And then the young man says in verse 20, I have done all these things. I've kept them from my youth. And then listen to what it says in verse 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack. Mark is the only one who says Jesus loved him. Why does he say that? And, and I mean, this is, this is something that was noted. Now, Mark, remember, I think we talked about this before. Mark is most likely Peter's gospel. Mark's just the guy who penned it for Peter. So Peter's there. He sees this and he tells Mark as he's telling him the story. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Wow, what is that? 
I mean, there, there was something distinct. Jesus, of course, loves everybody. But there was, there was this moment where there was this sense that there, there was something tender happening here. What was that? Well, let me quote to you again from Timothy Keller, because I think he really is onto something uh, with his perspective on this. And this is what he said. He said, Jesus, who at this point is about 31 years old, looked at him and identifies with him. Jesus, too, is a rich young man, far richer than this man can imagine. Jesus has lived in the incomprehensible glory, wealth, love, and joy of the Trinity from all eternity. He has already left the wealth behind him. Jesus says, I'm going into a poverty deeper than anyone has ever known. I'm giving it all away. Why? For you. Now you give away everything to follow me. I won't ask you to do anything I haven't already done. I am the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away the ultimate wealth to get you. Now you need to give away yours to get me. Now, again, this is speculative, obviously, on Keller's part, but you know what? It's really good speculation (laughs) because I think there's probably something like that happening here. Jesus is, he's looking at this young man and he's like, man, if he only knew who he was talking to. You think you've got riches that are hard to give up? Well, I gave up a little bit myself. And, And, you know, again, what did he give up? Well, Paul tells us in writing to the Corinthians, he said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. That's what happened. That's what happened. And so when Jesus looked at this young man, he loves him and he tells him the truth. You have the wrong God. Your wealth is your God. Give it away. Take up your cross and come and follow me. Because that's what Jesus did. And that, remember, let's go back to the beginning. Remember, this guy already knows that something's wrong. He's got it all, but it's not fulfilling him. what, what, What do we need? What's the next thing? Jesus said, this is it. Give everything away and come and follow me. Now, Jesus doesn't call us all to give everything away, but he certainly calls us all to take whatever is on the throne of our hearts and remove it and allow him that place there. And sometimes it looks radical like this, give it all away. And other times it looks different. It is a giving away, but it it does look different. But you see, here's what Jesus knows. And here's what those who have done this know. And here's what maybe a few of you need to know. That whatever you give up cannot be compared with what you get. And Paul, when he's writing to the church in Rome, he says in chapter 12, he says, uh, I beg you by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Give yourself, in other words, give yourself completely to God. Don't hold anything back. He says, which is your reasonable service? Why is it reasonable? Well, that's what Jesus did. He gave everything. And so he's not asking us to do for him anything that he hasn't already done for us. 
But here's the other side of it. This is where the blessing comes into our life. This is where that thing that I'm lacking, what is that thing? This is where that thing gets addressed. And this is where the lack is taken away and the fulfillment comes. And you see, it's it's exactly what Jesus himself did, who being in the form of God, he did not try to hold on to that, use it to his own advantage, but he humbled himself. He took upon himself the form of, Well, he became a man. He was found in fashion as a man. That's step number one. And then he's found in, and then he takes upon himself the form of a slave. And if that's not low enough, he dies a criminal's death on the cross. But remember, because he did this, Paul said, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. And you know, when you do that, when you do that similar thing, where you just throw out that image, just get rid of that identity thing that you're holding on to, and you just say, Jesus, I'm gonna just identify with you. When you do that, you know what? God will exalt you. God will bless you. And you won't have that, yeah, I'm doing this, that, the other thing, and all this, and I've got all that, but what do I lack still? You won't have that anymore. That's, that's taken away. And so, I just think of that, that, you know, I mean, this is, this is Jesus' teaching on the subject of wealth. And I don't know that there's anybody in here that it applies to in the same way that it would here, or maybe anybody listening to me that it might, but may, maybe so. But just know this, in the words of Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And there's one thing for sure, and Paul said it to Timothy, we brought nothing into this world and we're taking nothing out when we go. And so we are only giving up the things that we can't keep in the first place. But, and when we give them up for Christ, we gain what we can never lose. And that's eternal life and glory with him. And fulfillment and purpose in the present life. So Lord, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this reminder on this important topic that I I would imagine that we've all struggled with in some way or another at times and some probably more than others. So thank you that you're faithful to speak to us. And Lord, we want that word to speak loudly and clearly to us. We want... Lord, your truth to pierce our hearts. And Lord, even today, if there is uh, something that sits on the throne of our hearts other than you, Lord, would you help us to see it, help us to cast it down and be enthroned in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.